Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Christian Andriacchio was born to parents Todd and Ray Andriacchio. From early on, Christian dreamed of a life spent on the water. So, as soon as he turned 18, he began working offshore on a tugboat. He was very good at it, enjoyed it, was working his way up, and was promoted twice. He was making a good income and was happy and on course to become the youngest captain at his company, Magnolia Marine. From 18 to 21, all seemed well in Christian's life. He was charming and outgoing, had lots of friends, loved his family, and was an all-around good person who would end up being taken advantage of. His parents became concerned about a new love in Christian's life, 17-year-old Whitley Goodman. Initially, there were no red flags with his new love interest, and she even lived with the Andriacchio family for a short period as Christian would work 30 days at a time on the tugboat. She described her childhood as less than ideal and said her mother had kicked her out of the house. Christian's mother believed he wanted to take care of her and turn things around for her. Basically, in his mind, he was rescuing her. However, Whitley had a bad reputation and was allegedly abusing drugs. And after a few incidents, Christian's parents told him that Whitley couldn't stay there any longer. Christian was close to his younger sister, and Whitley didn't like that. She even tore a picture of her right in front of their mother, and she would lie and do things to get the sister in trouble while acting like she was trying to help her. Christian's older brother, Josh, agreed that they could move into his apartment at the Willow Ridge Apartments in Meridian, Mississippi, and help with the rent. Josh had also begun working on a tugboat, and when he and Christian were gone, 17-year-old Whitley had the apartment to herself. Christian even bought a BMW for her to drive. So while Christian was paying for everything, Whitley was allegedly sitting around the apartment getting high on pills. She was also seen partying with other guys when Christian was out of town working. Christian had a friend, Dylan Swearingen, who was also unemployed and relied on Christian's income to get him through. Dylan and Whitley, both unemployed, seemed to take over the apartment while the two Andriacchio brothers were out busting their butts working. At one point, while his brother Josh was home, Christian asked him to surprise Whitley with a drug test and if she failed to make her move out. When his brother confronted her, She refused to take the test and told him she would not be clean, so there was no point. She said she would test positive for Xanax and marijuana. 
After that, whenever he would get his heart set on kicking her out and getting rid of her, she would sweet-talk her way back in. She tried to convince him to make her the beneficiary of his life insurance in case she became pregnant and he was in a fatal accident at work. Once, she even told him she thought she was pregnant and asked if he would take care of her if she was because no one else would. She then suggested that they get married. Christian's parents quickly told him that her being the beneficiary was a horrible idea and so did his co-worker Cheryl Stanley, who he referred to as Boat Mama because she was like a mother figure to him while he was on the boat. With long stints on the tug, Christian began to doubt Whitley, and it led to a lot of conflicts in their relationship. Finally, in February 2014, as he left for a 30-day hitch, he told Whitley she needed to move her things out of the apartment and stay out of the BMW because he had had enough. Not long after getting on the boat, Christian received numerous calls and texts from his friend Dylan telling him that Whitley had been riding around in his BMW with a dope dealer and hadn't moved out of the apartment like she was supposed to and he needed to come home. Christian's co-workers witnessed these calls and saw that they were getting Christian all riled up and said he felt helpless being away from home. So, he decided to come home early and force her to take him seriously, make her leave, and live with her grandmother like she said she would. He was also told that Whitley had been hanging out with a guy named Matt Miller. But it wasn't easy getting off a tugboat in the middle of the water. But he was determined, so he concocted an elaborate story about a family situation involving his parents and sister. He said he was getting off the boat with or without permission and would get back on at the 5.30 p.m. crew change. Christian's Jeep, which was parked in Vicksburg at his work parking lot, was strangely moved into a different spot. Many knew that Christian kept a gun in the Jeep, and the day it was moved, there was no video surveillance to show who moved it before Christian got off the boat. Christian's parents had no idea that on the night of February 25, 2014, Christian had left the boat and was brought home by Dylan. About six hours later, Ray and Todd received a heart-stopping call. Christian's grandfather called his parents and said that something had happened to one of their kids and they needed to get home. On the drive home, they racked their brains, worrying and trying to figure out which child was hurt. They thought it couldn't be Christian because they had spoken that morning and he was on the tugboat and had weeks left before he was supposed to come home. But on the other hand, their daughter was at church and Josh was on a different tugboat and less experienced than Christian, so they feared that he might be the one hurt. Dylan Swearingen had called 911 that day to report that Christian had shot himself in the upstairs bathroom of his apartment. Then the police showed up at his parents' home with his driver's license and asked if that was their son. His parents immediately said Christian wouldn't have killed himself. They asked his uncle to go to his apartment to see what was happening because it just couldn't be him. When the uncle arrived, he was told to go to the police department. From there, they permitted him to go into the apartment at his will. They said it was not a crime scene and he was free to go in and do whatever he needed. Then, the alleged lies began raining down on the Andriaco family. What the uncle would see at the apartment, as well as others, was proof that a homicide had taken place. 
For example, there was a small amount of blood splatter outside the door and wall, as well as a small trail of blood in the tub. Dylan said the door was closed when he got to it, so if Christian shot himself in the bathroom, why would there be blood splatter outside the bathroom even just a little bit? Another abnormal finding was the sheets pulled off the mattress and deep cut marks on the bed in what appeared to be an attempt by someone searching for something hidden in the mattress. A bullet hole was above the electrical outlet above the sink in the bathroom that police blew off as a ricochet. The initial police report included statements by Dylan and Whitley. They told them their sequence of events, and even though some didn't make sense, the police just accepted it, according to Christian's mother, Ray. Dylan told police that when he and Christian arrived at the apartment that morning, Whitley and Christian immediately began arguing. Dylan said that during the argument, Christian put a gun to his head, threatened to shoot himself, and repeatedly asked Whitley if she loved him until she said yes. She said she messed up and had slept with Matt the night before, but didn't remember anything because she was on Xanax. Proof of this would appear later in text messages between the two. Dylan said he went upstairs to give them space. He then decided to go to Chick-fil-A and stop by Best Buy to look at some speakers. After the situation with Christian and Whitley calmed down, Dylan said he told them he was leaving to get food and asked if they wanted anything. He said Christian gave him his debit card and told him to pick up the food. Then he said Christian told him to go to the credit union and take all his money out of his account. Also, to see about getting Whitley's phone fixed, which was broken during the argument. This didn't make sense, though, because Christian was well aware that the bank would never turn over his funds to anyone other than him. He knew this because not long before, he had sent Whitley to withdraw funds while he was on the boat to pay for furniture. The bank would not allow her to access the money because she wasn't on the account. So he had to wire her the money instead. So why would Christian, knowing it wasn't going to happen, send Dylan to the bank to take out all his money? Later, several Best Buy employees who were also Dylan's acquaintances didn't recall seeing him come into the store that day. He did have a receipt for Chick-fil-A, though. According to Whitley's statement, when asked if Christian ever talked about hurting himself, she said, I don't think so. While driving to the police station, she told an investigator that she didn't believe she had ever heard him talk about hurting himself. Also, she never mentioned the incident of him holding a gun to his head that day, which, if true, was a very significant detail. Tests showed Whitley and Dylan both had gunpowder residue on their hands, while Christian had residue on his palm. Yet the Meridian Police Department did not investigate this further. Supposedly, Dylan was not at the apartment when the shooting occurred, but there's gunpowder on his hands? One of the private investigators the Andriacos later hired said that he had not read anything where Dylan was ever asked, how did you get gunshot residue on you if you never entered the bathroom? Whitley warned police that the test would be positive because she had been shooting guns the night before with a friend named Matt Miller. So she hadn't washed her hands or showered since the night before? Gunshot residue on a human hand generally only lasts about four to six hours because it's a pretty fragile piece of evidence that is easily wiped or cleaned off. Simply putting your hands in your pockets wipes gunshot residue away. 
Shockingly, despite all of this, Meridian police released Wheatley and Dylan that night. His parents did what any parent would do in this situation, hired an attorney. What immediately caught their attorney's attention was the police report. The first officer arrived at 5.05. At 5.43, they were pretty much done. And at 6.30, an officer was on the way to the Andriaco home to tell Ray and Todd Andriacchio that their son had committed suicide. His family claims the crime scene investigation lasted only 45 minutes. Then, working with private investigator Max Mays, they learned even more disturbing details. The lead investigator arrived at the crime scene and told everybody, wrap it up, this is a suicide. Then the chief of police came in and told them to shut it down, stop investigating, and rule it a suicide. He never even went upstairs to the crime scene. Phone calls from the parents to the investigator went unanswered and were unreturned for weeks. Then, weeks later, the chief told them that it was a suicide and would not be investigated, and it has never been. On February 26, 2014, the day of his death, according to Andriacchio's attorney, Dylan and Christian arrived at the apartment around 11.30. An hour later, Dylan was observed on a bank security camera to withdraw all of Christian's money. When asked why, he replied, because he wanted me to have it. He said that while driving back to Meridian from New Orleans, that Christian had told him he wanted him to have his money. So after running errands, he returned to Christian's apartment around 4 p.m. He claims Whitley was sleeping at the time, and Christian wasn't downstairs any longer. That's when he went upstairs, saw that the light in the bathroom was on, knocked on the bathroom door, and asked Christian if he was okay. That's when he says he found Christian inside, and his upper body slumped into the bathtub with a bullet wound to his head. He said he ran downstairs and woke up Whitley, who ran upstairs and began holding Christian. Later, Whitley said he had been moved a bit because Dylan had checked his pockets for money. Dylan said Whitley had checked his pockets for cigarettes. Who does that? Then there's the position of the gun. It was found wedged between his left thigh and the bathtub itself. He could not have shot himself in the right side of his head and then placed the gun between his left thigh and the bathtub. And Whitley claims she slept through the gunshot because she had taken Xanax the night before. So somebody shoots a high-powered pistol in a less than a thousand square foot apartment and you never wake up? His family went to the apartment to collect physical evidence because the police never did. So they turned in a bloody shirt that was stuffed behind the commode in the apartment, a knife that had blood on it, and of course, nobody knows where any of that stuff is now. Apparently, after shooting himself, Christian took off his bloody shirt and stuffed it behind the toilet. They turned to Jonathan Arden, a world-renowned forensic pathologist. He noted that things didn't add up. He said, for one, the entrance gunshot wound is in his right temple, once he received that gunshot wound, he's unconscious. He has no purposeful muscular activity like holding or manipulating a gun. Why was the weapon a powerful 45 Kimber semi-automatic 1911 pistol found in an uncocked position with a live round in the chamber if it had been fired? He stated that the gun should have been close to his hand or certainly on the same side of his hand and the arm and the body should have collapsed in a heap. 
It makes no sense for both of his arms to be outside the tub. Likewise, it makes no sense for the gun to be on his left, wedged between him and the bathtub. Then there's the gun itself. When you pull the trigger, this particular gun fires, reloads, and you're ready to shoot again. In this case, the gun had been fired and the hammer was forward or decocked. This makes no sense because if he had fired the gun, shot himself, or collapsed, the hammer would be back or cocked, and it wasn't. So someone manually decocked the pistol. Another problem is the magic bullet mystery. Dr. Arden said the bullet itself is even more problematic. He concluded that the bullet hole location near an electrical outlet above the sink and behind Christian did not align with what would have happened if he had shot himself while kneeling over the tub. There is no evidence inside the tub of any bullet strike. If he's in that position as found when shot, the bullet after exiting his head would have struck off the inside of the tub, but that didn't happen. Dr. Arden said there's no bullet strike inside the tub area at all. For that bullet to go through his head and strike the wall behind him, he now has to have the bullet ricocheting madly around the room. Dr. Arden also analyzed autopsy photos, revealing even more contradictions. He said the people who discovered him said he had only been dead a short period. However, he was in pretty firmly developed rigor mortis by that time, which means that he had possibly been there for hours, which is inconsistent with what they said. For Dr. Arden, it all adds up to one inescapable conclusion, homicide. He signed his name to a report claiming this was a homicide. So if Dr. Arden is right, why hasn't the Meridian Police Department investigated Christian's death as a homicide? The Andriacchio's attorney stated that in her 34 years of practice, she'd never seen anything like this. The Andriacchio family has spent thousands of their hard-earned dollars determined to prove that Christian's death was a murder, not suicide. When his uncle asked the police at the station for his nephew's keys and cell phone, they said they didn't know where they were. He insisted that either Whitley or Dylan likely had them. Demanding one of them produce his cell phone, Whitley got his phone out of her purse. She had it for hours while at the police station. His family could not access it without his code when it was given to them. They were, however, able to get his call records. Christian's phone records show that on the afternoon he supposedly shot himself, when Whitley says she was asleep, seven calls were made from Christian's phone to Matt Miller. The calls went unanswered, and some were placed after the coroner estimated the time of death. Remember, at this time, Whitley's phone was damaged, and Matt Miller is the guy Whitley claimed to have shot guns with the night before, her excuse for having gunshot residue on her hands. Matt Miller would say he thought the shooting appeared to be a setup. He said the night before, he and Whitley drove down a dirt road, Hayes Road in Meridian, and his cousin Jet wanted to get out and shoot his new pistol. He said that he asked Whitley if she wanted to shoot it. She said she was too scared to shoot it. Matt said he covered her ears as she sat in his lap while Jet was shooting. He said she never got out and shot the gun, therefore there would have been no way for her to get gunshot residue on her hands. Before the shooting, she texted Matt, saying Christian was kicking her out and asked him to come get her. He said he couldn't because he was at work. But she said, you weren't too busy last night, 
indicating they had relations the night before. He said that Whitley told him the events of that day afterward. Her story was that she was asleep on the couch and heard a gunshot, and she ran upstairs and found him. Then a week or so later, he said to her, So tell me what happened. Tell me the whole situation, what happened. She said, Well, I fell asleep on the couch. Dylan came back and found Christian and woke me up. That's what she said the second time, which made his ears perk up. In a copy of the text exchange between Matt Miller and Whitley, Miller says, You said nothing about Dylan. You said you found him. Whitley replies, Dylan didn't ever even go upstairs. Dylan told me to check on him, and I did, and he was dead. Again, this contradicts the statements Dylan and Whitley gave to the police. Matt told police that she is a compulsive liar, cheater, and sneaky. When asked if he thought Whitley or Dylan killed Christian, he said yes. When asked why, he said the money. Unbeknownst to Whitley, Christian never made her the beneficiary of his life insurance policy. Dylan also thought she was the beneficiary. He even went to speak with Christian's grandfather about it. He said Whitley's mother had sent him over to find out when the life insurance would pay out and Whitley needed a car. Three years after Christian's death, it seemed like the Andriocchio family was finally catching a break. Meridian replaced police chief James Lee, and a new detective was assigned to look at the mountain of evidence the family had gathered to prove this was a murder. Meridian police chief Benny Dubose came on board after the former chief Lee was fired following allegations of sexual harassment and Mayor Percy Bland's loss of confidence in Lee's ability to lead the department. After Dubose took over, he decided to reopen the case. According to private investigator Max Mays, justice was finally within reach. The new chief wrote up arrest warrants for Whitley and Dillon and took them to the judge to have them signed. But the charges weren't for first or second degree murder charges. They were for negligent homicide manslaughter, which is killing a person without malice, which is nowhere near what the charge that Whitley and Dillon should receive. Allegedly, the chief told the judge they couldn't prove anything beyond that, forcing the judge to deny the warrants. Neither Whitley Goodman nor Dylan Swearingen has ever been arrested or charged in Christian's death. A Lauderdale County grand jury chose not to indict Dylan and Whitley in Christian's death. A host of police detectives, three police chiefs, the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, private investigators, crime scene reconstructionist, a forensic pathologist, and several attorneys have tried to figure out how and why Christian died. In 2017, the case was turned over to the Attorney General's office. Law enforcement authorities and crime scene reconstructionists later concluded that certain aspects of the crime scene did not add up, and here are some of their findings. If Christian, who is right-handed, shot himself in his right temple, how did the pistol end up between his left leg and the outside of the tub? Why was the gun, a 45 Kimber semi-automatic 1911 pistol, found in an uncocked position with a live round in the chamber if it had been fired? If the death was definitely a suicide, why did the coroner rule it as undetermined? 
Why did forensic experts hired by the Andriacchio family conclude that the blood splatter in the bathroom and the bullet hole location near the outlet above the sink and behind Christian did not align with what would have happened if he had shot himself while kneeling over the tub? Christian's family says authorities refused to allow them to have an outside forensic lab analyze the DNA sample on the trigger of Christian's gun. His family has reached out to Sorensen Forensics for help and got them to read the crime lab report. They said the kit used by the lab was old and their company could use a newer one to test for DNA. Hopefully, authorities might change their mind at some point. So that leaves us to consider the final question. Was Christian's death a suicide or a failed murder investigation? Let me know what you think in the comments. As of 2022, Christian's death remains undetermined and this case remains unsolved. Cindy James graduated from nursing school in 1966 and within a few years, she was working at a preschool as an administrator for children with behavioral and emotional disorders. She would marry Roy Makepeace, but they would separate in 1982. In 1985, at the age of 44, Cindy was working as a pediatric nurse living in Vancouver, British Columbia. For the past seven years of her life, Cindy had reported 90 incidents of harassment and attacks beginning four months after she left her husband. Five were violent physical attacks, while others were phone harassment with someone whispering or not saying anything at all. She had also received a threatening letter with the words, I see you on it. The incident slowly got worse, especially after she involved law enforcement. At night, she claimed that she heard prowlers, her porch lights were smashed, and her phone lines severed. Bizarre notes also began appearing on her doorstep. She believed someone was trying to scare her, so she became reluctant and frightened to give details. Over time, the police began to doubt her stories. One night, her friend Agnes dropped by Cindy's house for a visit and knocked on the door. There was no answer, so she assumed she was taking a bath. Then she came across Cindy outside, crouched down with a nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. She had gone out to the garage to get a box and said someone had grabbed her from behind. All she saw were white sneakers. Fed up with the abuse, Cindy moved to a new house, painted her car, and changed her last name. She also hired a private investigator, Ozzie Caban. The police continued their investigation and questioned her several times. Ozzie later reported that Cindy would be evasive, withhold information, and not act as a normal victim would. Her mother, Tilly Hack, said when she tried to get Cindy to tell her what was happening, she said that she couldn't because her attacker threatened to harm her sister and family, and by naming him, her family would be killed. One night, P.I. Ozzie Caban heard strange sounds coming over a two-way radio he had given Cindy and went straight to her house. He went around the house and found it was locked. He looked through a window to see her lying on the floor with a paring knife pierced through her hand. She was taken to the hospital, where she later recalled seeing a man coming through her gate, then suddenly she was hit on the side of the head with an object. She recalled being held down and a needle going into her arm. 
Cindy saw her attackers sometimes accompanied by one or two others, but police could never find a suspect. They became more and more convinced that Cindy was somehow attacking herself. The threatening phone calls continued, but they were too short to trace. There were never incidents when the police had 24-hour surveillance on her house for days on end with up to 14 different officers, but another incident would happen when surveillance was not at her home. As police became skeptical of the harassment, her parents believed her attacker was staying away to make them suspicious of her. On December 11, 1985, she was found semi-conscious, lying in a ditch six miles from her home. She was wearing a man's work boot and glove and suffering from hypothermia with cuts and bruises all over her body. A black nylon stocking had been tied tightly around her neck and she had no memory of what happened. Cindy asked friends Agnes and Tom Woodcock to spend the night a few times. One night they stayed with her, they heard noises and awoke to the basement in flames and the phone dead from the line being cut. Tom ran out and alerted the neighbors to call 911. He saw a man at the curb and asked him to call the fire department, but instead, he ran off down the street. The police suspected that Cindy had staged the incident. They found no dust or fingerprints disturbed on the outside of the window sill. The perpetrator would have had to climb through this specific window to set the fire. It was also considered odd that Cindy continued to freely walk her dog outside. At one point, her doctor committed her to a local psychiatric ward, believing she was becoming suicidal. Ten weeks later, she left the hospital. Her father, Otto Hack, said that she finally admitted to her family and friends that she knew more than she was saying and would go after her perpetrator herself. Meanwhile, she was given a lie detector test and the results were inconclusive, but two tests showed she was withholding information. On May 25, 1989, nearly seven years after the first threatening phone call began, Cindy disappeared. On the same day, her car was found in a neighborhood parking lot. Inside were groceries and a wrapped gift. There was blood on the driver's side door and items from her wallet were under the car. Two weeks later, on June 8, 1989, in a quiet suburb of Richmond, less than two miles from her house, her body was found lying in the yard of an abandoned house. She had been drugged and strangled, and her hands and feet had been bound behind her back. It looked like she had been murdered, but an autopsy revealed that she died from an overdose of morphine and other drugs. So, police concluded that she had committed suicide. Her father didn't believe she would have been able to stage the scene, but others thought it was possible. In Vancouver, the coroner ruled that her death was not suicide, an accident, or a murder. They determined that she died of an unknown event. Cindy's parents never doubted that their daughter was murdered. They believed the police never investigated the possibility of a homicide and instead zeroed in on the suicide theory. They believed that someone in Vancouver was getting away with murder. But just as people believed she was a victim of a mysterious attacker, just as many people believed that she suffered from mental illness, and it got severely worse during the nearly seven years that these incidents took place. The messages that the caller left on her machine were clearly a woman trying to disguise her voice. 
She claimed to get calls day and night, and when someone would go to stay with her for a few days, the calls would conveniently stop. The police wanted surveillance at her home to catch whoever was attacking her, and they tried to put a 24-hour police patrol near her home for protection, but at times, she would get defensive or refuse altogether. It's definitely possible that she committed suicide, disguised as murder, which is a dimension of Munchausen syndrome. What do you think happened to Sandy, a victim of murder or a victim of severe mental illness? Let me know what you think in the comments. Jessica Renee Johnson was born to parents David and Linda Johnson, who have been married now for over 50 years. At age 37, Jessica was extremely close to her family and dedicated to her two grown children, Eden Huckleberry and Colin Johnson. She had loving parents who adored their grandchildren more than anything else. Sadly, Jessica ended up with a heroin addiction for several months and had to be checked into rehab. She received her one year sober without any problems and was close to getting her 15 months when she quit going to her meetings but still stayed straight. Her mother said Jessica didn't smoke cigarettes or weed and rarely drank except on special occasions or socially. Jessica wasn't what you would call a party girl. She attended many events because of her employment with Rock 103, a local radio station, and Channel 5 News in Memphis, Tennessee. She had a wonderful personality, loved to live, and lived to love. She was an emotional woman that loved with all her heart. But unfortunately, she had an on-again, off-again boyfriend, Garland Hart. Although most of her loved ones didn't approve of him, Jessica couldn't bring herself to break up with him for good. Jessica lived with her parents and children in Horn Lake, Mississippi, and on May 31, 2017, she told her family that she was going to stay with Garland. The next day, she called home and told her family that she would be back soon, but she never arrived. The next day, a mail carrier found Jessica's body tied to a mailbox in the 7500 block of Angel Drive. The courier first called another postal worker to the scene who took photos of the body before calling the police. She was on her knees in an overgrown lot with her head resting against a post. The police also found her half-open purse on the ground between her legs, and the metal clip was strangely broken off, which pointed to a struggle between her and another person. Her shoes were found on the property and appeared to have specks of blood on them. During the medical examination, they found her arms covered in mysterious markings, and one of her arms had a shoe print on it. Jessica had a history of addiction, and some have suggested that the marks on her arms looked like the marks some users get from meth splatters. Her ultimate cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation due to ligature strangulation, and the police concluded she had died by suicide. But others have speculated that she was beaten, and then her assailants framed it as a suicide. Jessica had shoelaces around her neck connected to a short 38-inch mailbox. Police claimed that she hung herself while on her knees. Surprisingly, Jessica's body was discovered outside the home of her boyfriend's friend, who claimed he was not involved in the woman's death. Her family has rejected the suicide claim, saying that Jessica would never choose to take her own life. 
They also expressed their concerns about Jessica's boyfriend, claiming he had a history of physical and mental domestic abuse. Through the investigation, the police discovered that Jessica, her boyfriend, and other people were all in the house for nearly two days before she was found nearby. Authorities even met with Jessica's friend, who claimed that Jessica and her boyfriend had a severe altercation the night before. In addition, Jessica reportedly called that friend in absolute hysterics on the night of her death. The friend stated that Jessica had locked herself in the bathroom and was pleading to be picked up because she was afraid of him. The friend showed up, but Jessica did not leave with her. One of the homeowner's roommates said Jessica was out in the driveway, pulled the shoestrings out of her shoes, and threatened suicide. He said he just shrugged it off and told her to get out of here with that. He didn't want to hear it and shut the door on her. He said later that night, Jessica sent the homeowner a text that she didn't want to feel the pain anymore. That was the last time he heard from her. Even though she was found in front of a home with a security system, the homeowner, a friend of the boyfriend, had several different excuses regarding what happened to the footage. This led many to believe they were helping her boyfriend with a cover-up. Her boyfriend claimed he was the last person to receive a text from Jessica where she spoke about freeing herself from the pain. To this day, the boyfriend has never been considered a person of interest. Also, an autopsy was never performed on Jessica's body and she was cremated, and the coroner ruled her death a suicide caused by asphyxiation. Moreover, neither the blood on her shoes nor the footprint on her hand was tested for leads. A former Memphis police officer believes Jessica couldn't tie this knot in the dark. He also said it was hard to believe that she sat there from 6 p.m. on Thursday until 9.30 or 10.30 Friday morning without anybody seeing her because people were riding up and down the street all morning. Jessica's mother, Linda, stated that her daughter was placed on display. She said her daughter would never do something like that, could barely even tie her shoes, and usually wore high heels. Of course, investigators lost the shoelace and never tested it for DNA. Her mother admitted that Jessica struggled with drug addiction and went to the house on Angel Drive to see her off-and-on-again boyfriend. Her mom described their relationship as toxic, and other friends and family said Jessica's boyfriend was a known abuser. There were several different incidents with him that made the family fear for her safety. She even once commented, this guy is going to kill me. Linda also said that Jessica told her to find him if anything happened to her. She also said she wanted the picture of the scene shown so that others could see that she was murdered. The Johnsons hired their own forensic scientist, Dr. Maurice Godwin, an expert and veteran of high-profile murder investigations, including the Casey Anthony case. He said his opinion was that it was a staged crime scene, just within walking distance of where she was visiting with her boyfriend. He stated, One of the first things is the neatness of the knot tied at the end of the shoestring. It's almost at the end of both ends of shoestrings, and the knot is tied very neatly at the end. So when she sits down to do this, how does she know how much slack she will need in the string? Too much or not enough and everything for that to work, and then tie that from a sitting position. Jessica was found with Xanax and methamphetamine in her system, which her family believes was one of the reasons behind an insufficient investigation. 
In another concerning twist, Jessica's boyfriend changed the passcode on her phone before handing it over to the family. He then refused to give the family the code, making it impossible for them to look for further evidence linking him to the crime. Apple declined to release the data without the passcode. The consensus is that the police mishandled her case, never treated it as a crime scene, and failed to look for further evidence. Without an autopsy or a body to exhume, the family is left hoping that at least one of the several people at the house that night will come forward with information. Do you believe that Jessica was murdered or committed suicide? Let me know in the comments. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.